Thank you so much, Jason. November the 22nd, 1963. January the 28th, 1986. September the 11th, 2001. All of these are dates that most of the folks in here will remember. November 22, 1963 is the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. January 28, 1986 is the day the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded. And we all remember September the 11th, 2001. A day that we'll probably never forget. That one day changed our world, and it changed us. A whole new system was put into place because of that one day. That system is called Homeland Security. Because of the events of 9-11, many times now you have to wait in a much longer line at the airport to get out because of the security. And there are even different color codes indicating the seriousness of the potential terrorist threat that we have to abide by. On that day in 2001, 19 men from halfway around the world infiltrated our, our culture because of a belief system. They had a belief system that created an action. Now, even though we didn't and still don't buy their belief system, we are affected by it. Their actions were wrong. Their belief system that inspired their action is illegitimate and evil, but it was effective. Their belief system acted. It didn't just talk. It made its presence known in America and around the world on that day. Those 19 men were disciples of their system. They didn't just know it. They believed it. And they risked everything to advance it by acting on it. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a visual, verbal follower of his person. It is to be clearly a representative of him to the degree that there is no question that you are a Christian in your world. Unfortunately, in the church today, we've acquainted being a disciple of Christ mostly by how much we know. But there's a big difference in being a believer and being a disciple. To truly be a disciple of Christ is more than head knowledge and memorizing Scripture. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus was getting closer and closer to the cross. People, who wanted to, people were gathering around him in droves. They wanted to see a miracle or, or get a free meal or anything. The crowd is about to become much smaller, though, because in Luke chapter 14, Jesus set forth the cost of discipleship, and it was neither then nor is it now a popular message. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus provided five marks of discipleship and used each one to teach a lesson. So if you'll take your copy of God's Word, turn to Luke chapter 14. Once you find your place, if you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Now great crowds were traveling with him, 
So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if, it has, if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? If it isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile, they throw it out. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. This is God's word. May he bless the reading, hearing, and action from it in Jesus' name. Thank you. You may be seated. People choose to know Jesus on several levels of intimacy. It's like a set of concentric circles. On the very outside, we have the crowd. This is the mob that was following Jesus. They knew who he was and uh, but they most of the times just kind of faded away. They'd soon be gone. In our world today, these will be the people uh, who really don't go to church anywhere. They know who Jesus is, but they're not really connected in any way, shape, form, or fashion. The next level inside that circle is a level that we would call the congregation. These people who, uh, they, they go to church, uh, sometimes even a fairly regular basis. Um, in other words, they, they congregate with other people to worship, but they're not really very active in the local church in any way. The next level inside the commitment of circles, of circles of commitment is what I would call the church. Now this circle represents those who are active in a local church and they have a deeper level of intimacy with Christ and with his body, but there is actually still deeper, a deeper level of commitment. We'll call that, that level, that inner circle, the committed. These are the people within the church who are real disciples. For a lack of a better way to say it, they are radical Christians. They're sold out to Jesus. Jesus has every ounce of their life, every moment of every day, every thought, every action, every word, every deed is sold out to Jesus Christ. If we look at these five marks of a real disciple this morning, I want us to note the vivid imagery that Jesus uses as we look into those words. The first mark that we see we find in verse 26 where Jesus talks about the family. Are you surprised that Jesus said to be a disciple you have to hate your family? It seems almost contrary because all throughout scriptures it talks about loving everyone, even your enemies. But we have to remember that Jesus often used figures of speech to give his words a greater impact in what he was trying to get across. And here he simply employed an intentional exaggeration to emphasize his point. To be a disciple, you must love Jesus more than you love anyone else, even your family. I will be the first to admit that sometimes that's very hard. 
because we're challenged to love someone that we cannot physically see, that we cannot physically touch. But that family member is right there. I can put my hands on them. I can see their expression. I can hear their voice. There's so many differences. And it's, this is hard. Hard to even gather and imagine. What Jesus is saying, that your love for him should be so powerful that when you compare it to your love for other people, even your family, it would seem as though you hated everyone else. And it's also true that sometimes your love for Jesus will alienate you from people who love you, even those that are closest to you and your family. Think about it this way. <clears throat> if a Muslim heard about Christ, let's say a Muslim from Iran heard about Christ, the Holy Spirit grabbed his or her heart and changed them and drew them to him and he or she accepted Christ. So they go on to be baptized. Number one, they'd have a very, very difficult decision to make, much more so than you and I, because he knows, she knows, at the moment he or she accepts Jesus and becomes a Christian, his family back in Iran would disown him. But not only would they disown him, they would have a funeral for him in significance that that person signifying that that child is dead to them, does not even exist any longer. So this Muslim has to make a hard choice to follow Jesus even though his or her family opposes it. If you truly know the Lord, you won't have to look for people to ridicule you, for people to oppose you. They'll, they'll find you. Some of them are probably going to be your family members. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's another story from the year 2001 that we don't hear too much about. Two Americans were arrested by the Taliban and held prisoner for 128 days in Afghanistan. You might think, oh, well, that was probably soldiers. Nope. It was two Christian aid workers. They were both fully devoted followers of Christ. One of them's name was Heather Mercer. Heather Mercer's mother was interviewed on television. It was one of those kinds of stories that the media just really likes to, to get all over because what they discovered is the mother was completely against Heather going and serving people in Afghanistan. The media really tried to play up the story um, to show that Heather's commitment to Christ had divided her family. What they wanted, they wanted to keep asking her how she could do something that her mother opposed so strongly. So in her book, Prisoners of Hope, Heather wrote this. We answered hard questions posed by our families and friends. Extraordinary are the parents who don't balk at the idea of their child moving to a third world war-ravaged, drought-stricken country, and in this case, a country serving as a hub for international terrorist activity. That we had decided to go as Christian aid workers to a country where a harsh, unpredictable regime severely curtailed religious freedom gave most of our loved ones pause at best and otherwise prompted serious alarm. We were asked, aren't you being foolish? Why would you jeopardize your own safety? To me, this is what Jesus is talking about in verse 26. 
To be a true disciple, you have to make some difficult decisions. Sometimes your family's not going to jump up and down all excited about those decisions. Loving Jesus supremely is the first mark of a true disciple. The great author Oswald Chambers put it this way when he said, to be a disciple is to be a devoted bondservant, motivated by love for the Lord Jesus. Many who call themselves Christians are not truly devoted to Jesus Christ. Mark number two in Luke chapter 14 is the cross. A real disciple is someone who carries his cross. I really believe that oftentimes we're confused about this verse today. I've heard people say that I have health problems, so I guess, I guess that's my cross to bear. Or I've had a hard job that I have to work at, that's just my cross to bear. Or my son or daughter is just running from the Lord, and I guess that's just my cross to bear. At the risk of sounding harsh, hear this clearly. Your cross is not a headache. Your cross is not a difficult child. Your cross is not a hard job. Neither the circumstances you face nor the consequences of your own actions are your cross. Your cross is God's will for you, regardless of the cost. Taking up your cross is a choice. A choice that each follower of Jesus has to make. The problem is that crosses are painful and we don't like pain of any kind. We want to get rid of anything that hurts. So what have we done? We've changed what the cross looks like. In the time of Jesus, the cross is a horrible, agonizing, torturous mode of execution. It was the noose, the electric chair, and lethal injection all wrapped into one instance. But in today's world, the cross is just some harmless piece of jewelry that we hang around our necks. In fact, the cross has lost its horror, its ugliness. In the time of Jesus, when you saw someone carrying a cross, it meant one and only one thing. That person was as good as dead. A cross today doesn't seem to have much more meaning at all. In fact, we treat it as a good luck charm or some symbol of our spirituality because we've lost the message of the cross. The message of the cross is death. To be a true disciple means that we're dead people. Paul understood what it meant to carry a cross. In Galatians, there are three verses about what it means to carry your cross. First one, I have been crucified in Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6.14. Being crucified means death to ourselves. Carrying your cross is death to yourself. To carry your cross means there's nothing in the world that the world has to offer that interests you. It's as if the world is dead to you and you're dead to the world. 
One of the classic books on discipleship is The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II, and he was, because he opposed the Nazis in their stance, he was put into prison, and he actually died in prison before the, world, before the war was over. But he wrote these words. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Interesting thing is that in many ways a dead man is set free. You won't truly be liberated until you understand what it, is, what it means and what it is to be crucified with Christ. Because there is no Christianity without the cross. We cannot be disciples of Jesus without taking up our cross. Third mark in these verses is the tower. And Jesus presented this image of a man who's planning to build a tower. Before he even begins construction, he has to count the cost to see if he has enough money and resources to complete the job. This is the cost of discipleship, not the cost of salvation. Because before you embark on the Christian life, if you stopped and asked, do I have enough to finish, your answer is always going to be no. It's not our resources that are necessary because God provides all we need for salvation. God is the builder who finishes the job called salvation. In Philippians 1.6, Paul said, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out into completion. Jesus is talking about the cost of total commitment. A good finish as a disciple is the key. There are a lot of backslidden Christians that may go to heaven when they die, but they won't finish very well. Because in verse 29, Jesus spoke about the man who was not able to finish. Jesus says, everyone will look at the incomplete project and ridicule him because he didn't finish the job. The older I get, the more I realize that there can never be any coasting in the Christian life. It's not easy. It's easy to say it's not easy to do. There is no such thing as spiritual retirement, though. Pages of the Bible are littered with great men and women who didn't finish well. Noah got his family on the ark and they were saved from the flood, but he ended up a drunken man who got naked and cursed his son. Solomon was the wisest man in all of history, but he didn't finish well. His many wives turned his heart from God. The list goes on and on and on. You've heard the old saying, it's not how you start, but how you finish. Here's some famous people who had slow starts. This young man was so dull as a youth that his father thought he might be incapable of earning a living in England. The young man's name was Winston Churchill. This man's first teacher described him as addled and his father almost convinced him he was a dunce. His name was Thomas Edison. This boy's parents feared their child was dull and he performed so badly in all high school courses except mathematics that a teacher actually asked him to drop out of school. His name was Albert Einstein. So the question is, are you going to finish well? The good news is that you're still breathing, or at least most of you look like you're breathing from what I'm looking at up here. Since you're still breathing, the finish is still out in front of you. 
And it really doesn't matter what has happened to you in your past. You can still finish well. Finish line is still ahead. So are you sitting on the track? Are you just going to drag yourself across the finish line? Or are you going to summon God's strength so you can sprint to the finish? A true disciple is driven to finish well. Mark number four talks about a war. In this image, Jesus describes two kings. One is outnumbered, so he wisely approaches the stronger king and makes peace before the battle ever begins. Imagine that you and I are one king and God is the other one. Guess which one you are and I am. Because we can never win against God, we must surrender to him. In Jesus' time, a surrendering king would be made into a slave of the opposing king, or at least there was a great risk that he would be. So it required great humility to bow down and ask for terms of peace. It takes great humility to surrender to Jesus. And you cannot be a disciple unless you're willing to give up control of your life to Jesus. It's not easy to do because we like to be in control. We like to know what's coming, when's coming, how it's coming, and what's going to be behind it so we can be prepared. I once read about a lifeguard on a beach. He saw a drowning man, <clears throat> and uh, he just kind of stood there and watched for a, you know, a few minutes. Man kept thrashing. You know, he was going down. The lifeguard went out just a little bit. A mob started gathering on the beach and was pointing to the man and yelling and screaming for the lifeguard to go get him, and the lifeguard didn't move. A few minutes later, the lifeguard stepped in and got a little bit deeper, just kept watching, never lost track of where the man was. The crowd is incensed by now because the lifeguard hasn't gone. And at about the time the man looked like he was going under for the last time, the lifeguard dove in, and with great strong strokes went out, grabbed the man, and brought him in. And after a few minutes of a little bit of help and some spitting up some water and breathing, the man was conscious and he was fine. Now you would think that everybody on the beach would be calling the lifeguard a hero. Oh, no, no, no. They called him a coward because he waited so long to go save the man. Well, the lifeguard was very good at what he did. He was also very patient. So he calmly turned to the crowd and he said, I stood and watched the man. You see him here. He's much larger than I am. You saw how hard he was kicking and thrashing, trying to stay afloat. If I had gone at that time, because of his size, he probably would have drowned both of us. I waited till I knew I could save him. And then I went and did what I knew I could do. It's a great lesson about salvation. As long as you think you're strong enough to save yourself, you won't surrender. It's only when you give up and you realize that you're hopelessly lost that Jesus can come in and save you at that time. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you surrendered everything you had, everything you are, to Jesus? I think real discipleship is coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I give up. I give up my thoughts, I give up my words, I give up my actions, I give up, my, I give up everything. I give up all control of my life from the very deepest part of me to everything that comes out of me. 
You know, I think one of the reasons that Psalms speaks of raising our hands in praise so much is because it's a, it's a gesture of surrender. Even today, if a police says, put your hands up, what you're saying, I surrender, I give up, I'm done. I don't want, I'm, I'm, I'm out of the loop. You're in control. Have you ever surrendered to Jesus? I didn't ask you if you were a Christian. I asked you if you put your hands up and said, I give up. I can't do this. I don't have the strength. I don't have the resources. I can't do this. But you can, so I'm yours. The final mark in these verses is a picture of salt. We find that in verse 34 and 35. Salt was very valuable in the time of Jesus. The greatest value of salt was that it was used as a preservative. Now, they didn't have uh, LG French-style refrigerators that open both doors at the top. And it's like, they didn't have all that kind of stuff. So they had to figure out a way to keep things from going bad, primarily meat. So what they would do is they would take fresh meat and just pack it with salt. And what that salt did is it created a chemical reaction around that meat that slowed the, the process of decay. It retarded the corruption. So as a consequence, it preserved the meat, the goodness of the meat, so that they could keep it for a while before they were just forced to eat it. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? The problem Jesus identified there is that some people have lost their saltiness. I learned an interesting fact in preparing for this sermon. Pure salt never loses its saltiness. If you get a salt crystal today, it's as salty today. If it's pure, it's as salty today as it was 10,000 years ago, if that even exists. I don't know if that long ago even exists. But if it did, and it was salt, and you got it today, it's just as salty if it's pure. Because pure salt never loses its saltiness. The salt used in the time of Jesus was mined. It came from the Dead Sea. Many of you know that Diane and I went on a trip to Israel back in 2013. Uh, I have been to the Dead Sea. Um, I did not get in it, but I have been there uh, all the way around the edges. There are rocks that are just covered and caked with salt. Um, the soil is about the color of your, it's about that orange. It's got so much sodium in the, in the soil that the sand is literally orange. To understand how salty this, the Dead Sea is, the Atlantic Ocean is about 3% salt content. The Dead Sea is 33% salt content. It's extremely salty. So everything that's in it, when the water evaporates, it leaves salt crystals. But the salt sometimes is mixed with other minerals. And although it looks like salt, pours like salt, it's not salty. When it was placed on food, it was tasteless. Didn't add any flavor to the food. When it was applied to fresh meat, the meat rotted anyway. Jesus warned against the spiritual condition that exists when our lives are not morally pure. When we allow impure thoughts and impure behavior to become mixed in our personality, we lose our saltiness. 
Jesus posed the question, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? In his day, there was no chemical process to make unsalty, salty salt again. I hope you got that. That was a lot of salt. The only thing to do with it at that point is to throw it out. And what they tended to do was throw it in the street and it basically would become gravel or, or uh, sidewalk. The only thing that we can do uh, is about the same thing when we're not salty. Sadly, many believers live such impure lives that they've lost their sense of saltiness in the world. Today, there is a simple chemical process that can restore the flavor to pure salt or to make it pure again. But the process was unknown during Jesus' day, so what was impossible for man is possible for God. If you've lost your saltiness, God can make you salty again. He knows the process of making you pure. It's called His blood. And then His Word keeps you pure. We live in a world suffering from moral decay. Seems like it's getting worse every day. <clears throat> more rotten. It just seems like more rottenness comes up every day. The stench is getting unbearable almost. But like salt, we must come in contact with that corrupted culture to slow down the process of decay. As salt, our job is to preserve the goodness that still exists in the culture. You remember the verse says, you are salt. Doesn't say you should be. Doesn't say you might be. It says you are. And you either bring some flavor, a little flavor, or no flavor to whatever the situation is, depending on your purity as a Christ follower. We must be the ones who speak up when a sexually oriented society pushes its agenda. We must be the ones who stand up and say, in love, that abortion is murder and homosexual behavior is perversion. If we don't speak out against moral evil, we've lost our saltiness. Now that kind of activity is not going to make us popular with our culture. We know that. Have you ever noticed how salt stings when it gets in a cut? It hurts. Salt irritates. But it's also a preservative. It's also an antiseptic. And our society could use a good cleaning. We must be pure in our pure salt in our corrupted world. If we aren't, we're going to be cast into the road and used as pavement while the world just continues to spiral its downward spiral. I want to close with just a few words. We should be dangerous disciples in this world. But too many of us are harmless to the devil's work. Now I'm not saying go pick a fight on with him. You don't have to go find him. He's going to come to you. Now, I will tell you this, the less of a disciple you are, the less he's going to mess with you because he's not worried about you. The more you seek to be like Christ, the harder the devil's going to come. That's just a pure fact, and it's not easy. Too many Christians are like the story about a dog. I heard one day a man walked into an old country store, and as he got there, he saw a sign that said, Beware of dog. Now, many of you don't know this, but my dad is a professional bird dog trainer, and until I was about seven years old, we trained bird dogs in Alabama in the summer and went to Canada in the, in the I mean, winter here, summer in Canada. One year, when I was about three or four years old, and I do remember this, uh, we were 
cleaning the pans up and this particular dog that I was taking the pan from wasn't finished, but I'm three or four and dad said, get the pan. So I did. Well, the next thing I knew, he was on my face and he chewed me up and I had to go to the hospital and got a shot with a needle that looked about that long. And so I'll never forget that. I'm 52 years old and I can see it like it was yesterday. Um, so when I see beware of dog, I pay attention. I love dogs. I have a wonderful dog. But any aggressive dog, I'm, I'm just like, ooh, it, it really sends chills in me. I don't do real well with them. So if you have an aggressive dog and I'm coming to your house, just put him away, you know, because <laughs> I don't want to fool with that. Just save me the heartache. But anyway, this man went to the country store, walks up, sees a sign, beware of dog. So as he enters the store, he's kind of doing this, you know. Well, as he gets in, he looks up the, hall, the little aisle there and he sees old hound dog laying there. So hound dogs sleep. So he walks up to the owner. He says, uh, what's up with the sign there? Well, the owner said, well, that dog doesn't do very much, but folks keep tripping over him, so that's why I put the sign up. <laughs> if you're a true disciple, are you a true disciple or are you just full of head knowledge? Are you really a dangerous disciple or are you just tripping those around you? Do you love Jesus more than anyone else, even your family? Are you a dead man or woman walking, carrying the cross of God's will in your life? Oh, by the way, on that one, he does say, cast all my burdens, all your burdens on me because I care for you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So you carry your cross, but guess who's helping you? Are you committed to finish strong for Jesus? Do you surrender everything you have to Him? Your thoughts, your words, your actions, every, every part of your being to Him. Are you willing to stay pure so that you can be salt in a rotting world? Jesus is looking for a few good men and women, humble people, pure people, <laughs> dead people, committed people, Today, decide what you need to do. Do you need to move from being a mere believer to make yourself into and begin the process of becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ? Pastor Davin has said it numerous times that a disciple is a lifelong learning follower of Christ. Learner is understandable. We're learning about Jesus, but you know what a follower does? He does what he learned. In my personal opinion, what made the 11 disciples of Christ true disciples was not just what they knew, but what they did. They did what Jesus told them to do much longer than the three years they spent with Jesus. It didn't stop. That's what made them disciples. They spent time with Jesus. They learned him. They knew him. And then they spent the rest of their lives serving him and doing what he said. Are you a disciple? Let's pray. God, I confess today that being a disciple is not easy. I also confess that oftentimes I fail. But I don't want to. 
I want to be one of those people that you've called to do something far greater than we can even imagine. I want to be that person that carries my cross, that gets myself out of the way so that you can work in me. Father, I believe that we all need that. We all need that attitude. I think that um, we've allowed so many other things to get in the way that, that our belief system about being a disciple just rolls down to what we know. And God, I believe your word teaches us it's so much more than that. So God, this invitation is yours. I don't know what's going on in anybody here. Only you do. And that's just perfectly fine with me. So God, if we enter this invitation, challenge us. Move us. And when we leave this place today, may we be different. Take this time of invitation. Use it in whatever way you see fit now. In the name of Jesus, amen.